Amen. Thank you. Go ahead and have a seat. And while you're doing that, uh, take your Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going through a series uh, this new year. By the way, it's already February, so we can't say Happy New Year anymore. So we can say Happy Almost New Year. February 1st today, or is it 2nd? What is it? 2nd. Oh my goodness, time's flying. So we're, uh, we're going through Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3. Uh, looking at uh, seven different letters, actually a circular letter that was probably all written in one document but circulated to these different uh, churches throughout uh, modern-day Turkey. And so today we're in verse 18, and we're going to go through verse uh, 29 as we look at the church, the letter written to the church in Thyatira, which is also a letter written to us. Revelation 2. Someone once said... Um, we name our sons David and Paul, our daughters Mary and Rachel, but we name our dogs Goliath and Nero, and we name our cats Jezebel. <laughs> I'm sorry for all you cat lovers out there. <laughs> uh, there's more coming, but uh, I, I, I honestly, I love cats, but on the farm, they were relegated to the outside where they could... Uh, conduct their uh, evil practices on, on uh, the mice and the rats and things like that. <laughs> Nonetheless, I say that for a reason because today a lot of what we're going to talk about is centered around this name Jezebel. So there's a story before we get to Revelation uh, 2.18. There's a story in 1 Kings chapter 16 about a king, his name was Ahab, who married um, a foreign uh, woman took for a wife uh, a woman named Jezebel and made her queen. So if you've um, ever observed a marriage where uh, the husband is uh, <clears throat> not engaged, you could say he's uh, uh, a bit of a, a dud and his wife is just running the show 100% where they should be running it together, that is this couple uh, Ahab uh, took Jezebel and she took over. And the problem is, is that her influence wasn't uh, good. It was, um, it, it got her husband and the entire nation of Israel into a lot of trouble. So what the first thing she did was she introduced uh, the worship of her gods. And uh, two in particular, she introduced the worship of Baal. Interesting that uh, I was doing a little reading about the, the, the idol, the god Baal, uh, a Canaanite god, where Jezebel was from. Uh, in the 17th century, the Goetic cult uh, writings of that century called Baal uh, one of the kings of hell. Interesting. So Jezebel introduced the worship of Baal, and she did so uh, in a very sly way, not by rejecting Yahweh, the God of Israel, the, true, the one true God, because that would be too obvious, but what she did was she added idolatry to this worship. In fact, so much so that uh, she, she um, not only persuaded King Ahab to build an altar to Baal, but she also introduced uh, the worship of Asherah as well and set up poles, and in fact, uh, there is uh, there's evidence that uh, Asherah was worshipped, so this is a female deity. Uh, Baal, by the way, was a Canaanite god of fertility, and Asherah was the mother goddess of motherhood and fertility. So you can see where this is going in a moment here. 
Uh, fertility is important. Uh, Asherah was worshipped alongside Yahweh in his temple, and Jezebel convinced Ahab to convince the people that she was the wife of God. Asherah was the wife of Yahweh. And so along with that, she began to persecute Israel's prophets because they were teaching something different than she was and promoting something different than she was promoting. She was more than likely the most wicked queen in Israel's history. So when Jesus, in the text that we're about to read this morning, calls the church in Thyatira essentially a Jezebel church, this is not a good thing. All right, so keep that history in perspective and let's read Ephesians 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw onto her a sickbed. I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers will keep, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, there's a bit of a heavy passage for... Sunday morning, early in the new year, why don't we pray, uh, let this sink in, and ask God to uh, lead us and speak to us. So Father, that is my prayer, that you would help me to be faithful to your word, and that you, Holy Spirit, as your word is applied, would speak to us. God, I, I don't want this to be a meaningless exercise where we come away with more knowledge, but that we would walk away having encountered you and your son Jesus, and that our lives would be transformed. So, Spirit of God, would you, would you bring comfort? Would you bring conviction? Would you bring uh, to light truth in your word uh, that you would unveil for us today in a new way? In Jesus' name I ask, amen. So there are four things that, I, uh, that we see in this text that I'm going to comment on this morning. And uh, the first one is a word of commendation. The second is a condemnation. <laughs> the third is a conviction. And the fourth is a word of comfort. Because in a heavy passage like this, we need some comforting words, don't we? <laughs> this is pretty heavy stuff this morning. So the first thing we see is that Jesus commends 
this church. He praises this church for their growth in good works. Revelation 2.19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceeds the first, exceed the first. This is amazing. The words your love and your faith show their motivation for their works is, is love for Jesus, the opposite of the church in Ephesus. They, they were motivated out of a deep love for Jesus uh, into an action that was servant-based, like Jesus, sacrificial, steadfast. They weren't stagnant or satisfied in their service. They were growing in it, and they were commended by Jesus for it. And these are the things that churches should strive for. You know, if you went to this church, you'd think, boy, these are great people. They're generous. They're servants. They're kind. They're humble. When you walk in there, their greeters were warm and friendly. They were nailing it. They had, they had no volunteer needs in kids' ministry whatsoever. <laughs> and that was just an announcement, by the way. Uh, they, <laughs> if someone was sick or they needed a meal, they were there. They were doing it. And they were growing in all of it. But, but Jesus only spends this one verse uh, commending them for their motivation, their love, and their works. And then he spends the next four verses to point out a spiritual sickness that was ravaging the health of this church from the inside out. And so while they were doing well, there was a lot of sickness that needed to be taken care of. And so this is where Jesus spends the most of his time. Let's go to verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. Leading those good people in the church astray, right? To practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Secondly, Jesus condemns this church. He condemns, not the church, but he condemns their tolerance and the fact that they have compromised. They, they, he condemns a compromising tolerance that they were engaging in. So we first read about Thyatira in Acts chapter 16. If you go there later today and do your devotions or whatever in Acts 16, you'll read about the Apostle Paul who went to a city uh, named Philippi and there he met a woman who is, who is called a dealer in purple goods. She was, uh, her name was Lydia. And Acts 16 tells us that she was doing business in Philippi but she was from Thyatira. So her, sort of I would say her corporate headquarters or upbringing was Thyatira but she was doing business in the whole area. Uh, a wealthy businesswoman. She was the first convert to Christianity in Philippi and likely the first convert as well from Thyatira and she sold purple cloth. Actually, she, it says, scripture says she was a dealer in purple goods so that maybe extended beyond clothing to other things, I'm not sure. But if you had purple cloth in that day, you were doing really well. You, you were not um, buying your clothes from Costco like I do, because I, I like them. The pants that I'm wearing this morning are, are their Costco pants. Like, you know, these stretchy pants, these jeans, they're, they're awesome for me. I love them. They're comfortable. But they, I certainly didn't buy them on Robson Street in Vancouver, you know, with the Gucci tag on it. Like, this is, this is what Lydia was, was dealing. She was dealing the high-end stuff, not the Costco brand. This is a big deal. There was a lot of status involved in the business that she was in. Thyatira was the, manuf was the manufacturing hub for the Roman, in the Roman, Roman province of Asia. 
and their, co their uh, commerce was in fabrics, in bronze, that's going to that's gonna be important later, in purple dye, uh, and they were known for their inordinate amount of trade guilds. So a guild, think uh, labor union. These were groups of people who banded together so that their trade would prosper. They had guilds for uh, wool workers, for linen workers, for garment makers, for dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, bronze smiths, and shoemakers. A lot of clothing in this industry and other things. And to not join a trade guild meant financial loss for you because you were kind of floating on your own. So you had to team up with guilds in order to be successful. But here's the thing. Membership in a trade guild meant participation in the activities of the guild. Think of unions today. If the union says that you're picketing, and if you walk over the picket line and go to work, that generally wouldn't go very well for you uh, as an employee who's a member of a union. But in the case of these unions or these guilds, participation was inexpensive inexplicably tied with idol worship. These were some wild unions. I don't know, I guess there's probably a lot of union uh, headquarters these days that are pretty wild too, right? Where the, the good old boys get together and do who knows what, but this was wild. It was tied up, these guilds were tied up with idol worship, the worship of foreign gods. Meals consist of food, consisting of food sacrificed to idols, a drunkenness and sexual immorality was rampant in these cities and in these unions. So here's the situation. Joining these unions and, in their, endeavor, and their endeavors would compromise a Christian's allegiance to Christ. It was very difficult to be a Christian, to be a Lydia in this day. But not joining one could mean potential poverty or bankruptcy. So do you feel the tension? Gotta be involved. Because if I'm not, I don't thrive. But I don't want to participate in what's going on over there. Terrible situation to be in. Hard to make a stand for Christ in a situation like that. But Lydia was a strong woman. Here's the worst part. There was this woman Jesus called Jezebel who was teaching a theology of compromise in the church. So you can have both and. You, you can join the guilds and you can have Jesus too. I mean, Jesus doesn't want you to be poor, does he? Work is work. Religion is religion. Compartmentalize. Jesus understands if you just separate those. It's okay. Everybody attends these parties. You, you don't want to hurt your business, do you? I mean, you, you have to join in to, to thrive. You're doing this for your family. That's a good thing. The peril that Thyatira is in is that they're not dealing with Jezebel. There were, some, there were faithful servants in this church, but they were letting Jezebel teach what she was teaching. They were not dealing with it. They were tolerating it, and in some cases, they were even embracing her teaching, which was contrary to God's word. Now, was there an actual Jezebel in the church, like called Jezebel? I, I personally don't think there was, but I think that there was an actual woman in the church uh, in Thyatira who was doing what scripture, what Jesus said she was doing, but Jesus referred to her as a Jezebel. 
to make a point, going back to 1 Kings 16 and, and all of that. So like if you say to somebody, well, there goes Jekyll and Hyde, you're going to go like, what? Like, I thought his name was Bob. Well, it is Bob. <laughs> but he's a Jekyll and a Hyde. Well, what does that mean? It means that he can be... He can be two-faced. He can be a really good person or he can be a really bad person. So you better be careful dealing with that person because you just don't know what you're going to get. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's referring, I believe, to some specific person in this church whom he describes as a Jezebel and people should have got it. It's safe to assume that she was a powerful personality and had a following. She would have been influential and, a, and been a compelling communicator. You, you would have wanted to follow her because you liked what she said. But she was like the first Jezebel. She was evil, deceptive, domineering, scheming, idolatrous, and sexually immoral. And inviting others into that lifestyle. She compromised her hearers' freedom in Christ, but was actually leading them into slavery, away from the lordship of Jesus, and ultimately, Jesus says she's leading them to death. So here are three things within this text that Thyatira and, and we at Central need to recognize and confront. The first is this, that leadership, who you give authority to, leadership matters. It really does matter. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, verse 20, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching. Well, who appointed her? Who appointed her to a role of authority? If you have the answer, just shout it out. I'm okay with a little interaction. She calls herself a prophetess. She did. Okay, time out, guys. Huge red flag going up here, okay? Huge red flag. God didn't appoint her. The church didn't appoint her. She appointed herself to be a teacher in this place, and people were listening to her. Now, this doesn't negate the fact that there is a gift of prophecy and that there are those in the church who legitimately have this gift, but it has to be discerned by the body and particular by the leaders of the church, carefully discerned who's going to give words of prophecy. But here we see an inappropriate seizing of power because people were clearly following her. And so um, I, I mentioned it last week, but Central, our church right now, is in the process of elder discernment. And friends, this is a huge deal. And this is why we have a really uh, rigorous and stringent process of selecting elders at Central. So I would encourage you to go visit the Welcome Center and to pick up uh, a, a form. I think it's uh, like four or six pages. What is it, Heath? How many pages is that thing? It's pretty long. And your role in the congregation is to write down uh, who would be a good candidate for an elder from to be an elder at Central Community Church because we have one leadership team that oversees every, every work that we have, every place where we meet. And there's, a, there's quite a process that goes into that. So there's a form to fill out and you have to give reasons biblically and from the form why you think that person, the evidences you see in their life about why they would be a good elder for our church. Then it goes to a discernment team of four people uh, at our church. Our lead pastor is one of them. Uh, 
And then there are, I, I do believe, uh, two elders that sit on there. And then there is one person chosen from the congregation this year, uh, Daphne McRae. Some of you will know her. She's now in uh, Lake Arock. She's going to sit on that team. And they go through the first step of discernment. After that, some things might be weeded out and pared down. And the names that kind of rise to the surface to say, yeah, okay, we're ready to go. There's another form that needs to fill out, a long application form by the person who's been nominated. And once they've gone through it, it goes back to the discernment team. And then they interview that person and they talk to their family and they, they do all kinds of things. And they say, okay, are we ready to go or not? If the light is still green, it goes back to the elders at Central, the current elders, and they say, okay, here's the information we have from our discernment team on this person. Do all of you give the green light to this? And if it's a green light, then they say yes. If they say no, it stops right there. That name doesn't even come to the congregation, but the next step is congregation. Two weeks, that name is put on the screen, and if anyone in the church has a reason why that person should not be an elder, they have two weeks to speak up, and that process could be shut down there again. So, like, it's a stringent process, and we do that for a reason, because the elders are responsible uh, to oversee the ministry that our lead pastor has. And our lead pastor is responsible to oversee the ministry that the rest of the pastoral staff have. And the authority flows down from there. And that's why at Central we have a plurality of elders. We want more people on that team. And we have a plurality of pastors because there's accountability there. You see, if someone in the church or something in the church takes our eyes off of the main focus, and that is Jesus and his word, or if they add to or minimize the gospel, or they compromise biblical truth, or they engage in immorality, that is not a voice that you want speaking into your life. You don't want that. And so that's why we have gatekeepers at Central. And this church should have confronted and they should have excluded Jezebel, but instead they tolerated her in her state of unrepentance and sin. So the second thing that matters is truth. I've already alluded to it, but, you know, authority matters and leadership. Truth matters. Jesus said that this Jezebel, quote, is teaching and seducing my servants. This word seducing is literally deceiving them and leading them astray. Her doctrine was attractive, but it was very seductive and it was leading them down the wrong path. When they heard her teach, it sounded good. It sounded like prosperity. And it sounded like freedom. It seemed fresh. It seemed exciting. But it led to death. And here's the problem. Her teaching claimed to exalt Jesus, but it actually dethroned Jesus and it put self at the center. Isn't that what we heard about last week? Pastor Chris preached a phenomenal sermon here last Sunday. I was, I was so pleased. With, with not only what he said, but how he said it. It was, it was powerful. It's very convicting. And, and, and the question that, that, uh, that Pastor Chris had for us last week was, who's on the throne? Who's on the throne not only at Central, but who's on the throne of my life? And to be a repentant person and to follow Jesus means that I've got to get myself off of that throne and I have to put Jesus there. Jezebel was leading people to take Jesus off the throne and to put her teachings and her ways there. She claimed to teach truth, but her teaching was built on a lie. So here's um, something that's, uh, if, you know, if there's any one thing that you know, I could uh, 
I mean, there's lots of things I'd hope you'd walk away with today, but if there's a sort of a big thing to take away with, it would be this. Almost always, when there is a new interpretation of Scripture that comes about, it is almost always to excuse sin. We do what I call uh, exegetical or doctrinal gymnastics in order to make things fit so, so that we can carry on with a lifestyle that we want. And we'll just make Scripture say that. You know, I, I, I had to leave my wife for this woman because she didn't make me happy anymore, but this new one does. And, and so we, we do theological doctrinal, exegetical gymnastics with God's word to justify that. And we come up with a new interpretation on marriage and divorce. One, not, not one that is intended. See, any interpretation of scripture is designed to draw us closer to Jesus. But, but our, our reinterpretation of things is not to draw us closer to Jesus, but to free us up to, to sin. I love Jesus, but I also want sexual freedom. So here's a new teaching. <laughs> this morning in our, in our prayer time, our leader read from uh, a passage in Corinthians. And so I was just uh, perusing a little bit through Corinthians and, uh, as, we, as we were sitting there. And uh, I came across uh, this, this passage. I hadn't intended to say it this morning, but it fits. It was very God-directed. 2 Corinthians 4. Verses 1 and 2, Paul said, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. See, this ministry that we have here, friends, Central Community Church, is by the mercy of God. It's by His grace. It's not ours. It's His ministry. Paul said, We do not lose heart. (laughs) Therefore, since we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Why? Because it's hard to stay committed to the truth. He says, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And he talks about the gospel not being veiled to those who don't want to understand truth. But to those who are committed to truth, God reveals things. Listen, we are more than 2,000 years, you know, into church history. Not God's history with his people. That goes way further back, but into church history. And so when you come across a new interpretation of Scripture, a new understanding of Jesus, a new whatever that hasn't been embraced for centuries, that's another red flag. All right? It's another red flag. Daryl Johnson says that we're tempted to base our lives on the way things are. But this, he says, is the spirit of Baal worship alive and well today. See, we, we, real, we rationalize because, you know, this is happening in my life. These are my circumstances. I feel this way. I have these desires and these drives. They must be right. And I'm only, you know, being true to myself if I'm guided by them. But Jesus teaches that something's gone deeply wrong in the universe, that it isn't functioning the way it was created to be because of sin. And therefore, some of, I would say most of our feelings, my feelings, my desires, my drives have been distorted and and usually ruin our lives if we give in to them. 
We only know who we are created to be and how we're created to live from the word of God, from the maker of heaven and earth in whose image that we've been created. And if someone is not teaching this accurately, they need to be removed. And not only did Jezebel teach these, uh, what Jesus says, the deep things of Satan, but the church tolerated it. So in Ephesus, how we began the series, uh, you know, um, Jesus said to this church, you know, you're really good at doctrinal purity. Like you are guarding the word. You're making sure that you're teaching it correctly. You are on the right track. But the thing he had against them was they lost their first love. You know, 40 to 60 years after faith first came to Ephesus, they hardened their hearts and, and they had lost their love for Jesus, but they were still holding true to his word. And Thyatira is just the opposite. They're a very loving, generous, sacrificial church, but they have lost their commitment to the word of God, to doctrinal purity. They think, they think that it's loving to tolerate evil in their midst by not addressing it because that's what tolerance is. To tolerate something means you either leave it alone or you permit it, and it's usually both, right? I'm not going to touch that. I'm just going to let it go on. I don't want to ruffle the feathers because, I mean, we all love each other, right? They thought they were being loving by not addressing Jezebel when in actuality they were being unloving to permit her to ravage this church from the inside out. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15, Paul said, leaders in the church are given to equip the saints for works of ministry, work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Because these winds of doctrine, they're constantly blowing, friends, constantly. By human cunning, by the craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. Okay, there's the balance. Not even balance, it's, it's both. We need to be deeply committed to truth and we need to be deeply loving towards people. And if somebody needs to be corrected, we need to correct them. If somebody needs to be removed, we need to remove them for the health of the entire body, right? We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ. Our focus is on Jesus. There's always pressure for us Christians to swim with rather than against the currents of culture. And when we, are to, and when we choose to swim against the cultural current, it is, it is not popular, it is extremely difficult, and that's why Paul came to the conclusion, you can read it in Galatians chapter one, he said, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I have to be a servant of Christ and I have to make it my aim to please him. Whether or not people like me, that doesn't matter. I want them to like me. <laughs> I'm going to love them. I hope that they would love me in return. But liking someone and loving them is two different things. Hopefully our love for people will mean that we actually like them too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's a good thing to like one another in the church. Don't get me wrong. We all like one another, right? But we have to be a servant of Christ first. Don't adapt God's imperatives 
the truth of his word to suit your circumstances. Rather, submit your circumstances under the authority of God's word to his imperatives, to his direction, and then ask him to give you the strength to remain faithful because it's hard. It's hard to remain faithful in this culture. It is hard. So we take our circumstances and we put them underneath the word of God and we say, God, help me be faithful to you. When you bend on doctrines of the faith, when you are led away by a Jezebel, pretty soon your faith in Jesus is gone. Then you're just playing church. Third, uh, we see here morality matters. Um, Jezebel deceived people in Thyatira to do a couple of things. First of all, to participate in pagan idolatry and then to commit sexual immorality. And there are no two greater things in our culture. They just come in different forms, right? Our idolatry, sexual immorality has always been the same. But what idolatry looks like is different, but the two usually go hand in hand. Sexual immorality is a sort of a catch-all uh, term in the New Testament to describe uh, sexual activity or sex outside of the context for which God created it. That is sexual immorality. And what is the context that God created uh, sexual expression to be uh, given and received? It is a covenant marriage between one man and one woman for life. That is the context for the expression of sex, the act of sex. Um, anything outside of that, the Bible calls sexual immorality and Jezebel was leading people into sexual immorality and idolatry. She was saying that it's fine to compartmentalize your sacred life with your secular life. I mean, and people use the excuse or the reason, well, I mean, that's uh, really idealistic of God to set down that, those kind of parameters, but I, I live in the real world, that's just not reality. What's more real, friends? A business is just business. Jesus understands if I compromise. Compromising my convictions won't hurt. What, what he doesn't know, what she doesn't know won't hurt them. D Daniel Aiken said this, when the church looks like the world, you have a sick church. When the church acts like the world, you have an impotent church. When the church plays with the world, you have an unfaithful church. My prayer is that we would be faithful in an increasingly hostile culture. We need to remember, Central, that the standard for the church is not the world, it's Jesus and what he says. So we need to be faithful to him. Third, we see conviction in this passage. Jesus convicts this church of their sin and of their need for repentance, and he does that in our lives too. It's a gift. Conviction, friends, is a gift. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, say, thank you, Jesus. Because he wants you to be a faithful follower. He wants you to be more, made more in the image of his son every day. Revelation 2, 21 through 23, I gave her time to repent, 
but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. That is, that is a hard verse. Her, her children here, I think, is not um, actual physical children. I think it is her spiritual offspring, those who share in her debased views and her, and her sinful nature, those who listened to her and followed her and participated in what she did, those are her children. And Jesus doesn't mince words. To kill them means to turn them over to the destruction and the death that they're pursuing. And that's what Paul taught in, in 1 Corinthians, where sexual immorality of a very unique kind was allowed to infiltrate the church. And Paul says, you have to remove this person. You have to, otherwise it's like, it's like yeast that works its way through the whole batch. You leave it in there and you're, pretty soon the whole thing is infected. And what did he say? Hand this person over to Satan. What does that mean? It means that you turn them over. If you want to play in that sandbox, go for it. We're going to put you there. so that everything that you're doing can be weeded out of you until you finally come to your senses and realize, I need Jesus, and you'll be saved. And here we see the generosity of Jesus. He, he, he not only brings judgment on those who refuse to repent, but he gives sinful people opportunity after opportunity to repent. He not only gives those who were seduced by Jezebel time to repent and the spiritual children of Jezebel time to repent, he even gives Jezebel time to repent. God is patient and kind and merciful. These are the words and actions of a holy, righteous, just, and merciful God. Jesus is neither a vindictive judge who shows no mercy. He, he, he does the right thing. But he doesn't sweep injustice under the rug and so he went to the cross because sin must be dealt with and he dealt with it. God is so generous and so merciful and so patient with us. That's why in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, when we continue to sin, it is like trampling under our feet the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus in his righteousness and holiness and justice has to deal with sin. So what did he do? He dealt with it. He dealt with it by shedding his own blood. And when we trample that blood under our feet by continuing in willful sin, it is a very dangerous place to be in. That's what Hebrews tells us. And the, the sin of Thyatira is that this church tolerated sin. And, and we do it in our lives. We, we tolerate sin so much and we call it love. We tolerate sin and we call it being gracious. We tolerate sin and call it freedom in Christ. We tolerate sin really because we love it. We're not supposed to tolerate sin, we're supposed to kill it. There's a, there's a man named John Owen who wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. This is going back to the 1600s. He lived 1616 to 1683 and John Owen said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That comes from Genesis, friends, way back in the beginning, chapter four. What did Jesus say? What did God say? 
He said, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you. You've got to master it. You've got to kill it. You've got to take control of that. Because we are all sinners. All of us. Uh, regarding sexual sin, I don't know if, uh, I think a bunch of you attended the uh, seminar we did on um, a, f- a couple of months ago at Central on uh, the LGBT plus um, topic. And there we realized very quickly by going through the passages in the New Testament on, on these issues that we are all sexually broken, all of us. We're sexual sinners. Bill Perkins said, if you think you can't fall into sexual sin, then you are godlier than David, (laughs) stronger than Samson, and wiser than Solomon. And I cringe when people say, I would never do that. I will never do that. And I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You could. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? The question is, are we repentant and are we killing sin or are we tolerating it it and compromising our very faith? You see, because faith in God and faith in Baal isn't faith in God. It's compromise. And when we roll with the cultural norms of our day, which is contradictory to faith in God and Scripture... It, it, it's, it's, scripture calls it rebellion. It's a blending of faith and idolatry and it's dangerous. So we're going to get real personal here for a moment and ask ourselves the question, what is the sexual sin that you tolerate and compromise your faith with? We need to be asking these questions as a church. Is it premarital sex? Is it something far more dangerous just participating in the hookup culture where there's not even dating involved but just free sex wherever you can get it? Is it porn? Not, not, using, not realizing that pornography actually does a few things. It, it victimizes people who are image bearers of God, people who are being abused and held against their will. Uh, corrupting your view of God and of sex, destroying your marriage or your relationship with with someone else if you're in one? Is it being unfaithful to your spouse? Is it like literally or is it emotionally? Uh, Engaging in an emotional or fantasy affair? Basically giving your heart to someone else? Is it being undiscerning with what you watch uh, in movies or in television or on Netflix or whatever? I don't want to miss out on that show because it's really popular. And my word to you as well, if it's going to ruin your relationship with Jesus, then yeah, miss out. Just miss it. Now God doesn't expect us to be perfect, though we are to, to, to strive to be like Jesus in all of his perfection, but what God does expect of us is to be a community of repenting, Sinners, he expects us to call sin what he calls sin and agree with him and ask for his help to live his way. So what in your life is contrary to the word of God? Where are you compromising? So let's end with something a little more encouraging, okay? (laughs) It's kind of like freedom session. Kind of takes you up and then it brings you really low and then it brings you back up again, all right? 
There's some comforting words in this text, and we're going to end with this this morning. There's things that Jesus wrote about his promises to us and also about his character that are incredibly encouraging and comforting in this hard text. So here's what we've learned. A church that tolerates false teaching and corrupt morality will be judged if they don't repent, but those who hold fast to the truth of the gospel and of God's word will be rewarded. And listen to the astounding promises of God at the very end of this text, and then we're going to come back to the beginning because it's all built on the character of Jesus. This, this text is bookended with promises at the end and the character at the beginning, so let's start at the end. 26 and 27, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. It's interesting that Jesus said to this church, to the ones who were being faithful and not following Jezebel, he says, I'm not going to lay anything else on you. If you do that, you're a winner. <laughs> it's basically what he said. I'm, <laughs> that's enough. You're, you're doing an awesome job if you, can, if you can hold to your convictions and follow Jesus in the middle of this culture. Yay. To the one who does that, to the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron rod as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received, have received authority from my Father. This is amazing. Those who are conquerors, victorious, who overcome, who persevere in, their, in the gospel, who keep their fix on Jesus, he says, I'm gonna give you authority to rule with me. Elsewhere in scripture, scripture Jesus says, don't you know we're gonna, we're, we're gonna judge angels? You're gonna have un unbelievable authority, but you're not gonna get it unless you conquer gets even better. Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Who's the morning star? This is Jesus himself. Jesus says, keep your commitment to me and I will give more and more of myself. I'll give all of myself to you. <coughs> you will re receive my rule and me. So hang on. These are amazing promises. Go back to the beginning. Aren't those great promises? Love them. What about the character of Jesus? Verses 18 and 19. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know. There's those words again, I know. Let's pick out a few things. First of all, we see that Jesus is the Son of God. This is who he is. In the culture <coughs> that Jesus was spoke, uh, speaking to here, there was a couple of gods, Apollo, the sun god, Diana, the fertility goddess. Things haven't changed much through the centuries. They were the, some of the more significant deities in Thyatira. Apollo, who was the son of Zeus, was referred to as the son of God. And so when Jesus addresses this church that had Apollo, the son of Zeus, at the center of their idolatry, Jesus says, I am the true son of God. Not Apollo, the son of a lifeless idol. I am the son of God. And I've been given all authority over Apollos and Zeus and Caesar, over the trade guilds and the corporations, over the nations. Will you follow me?
Jesus in this passage has eyes like a flame of fire. And we sang this morning the song, A Holy God. A Holy God. Whenever there's fire associated with God, it refers to his holiness and his purity. And the, and the lyrics in the song that we sang this morning was, who else could rescue me from my failing? Only a holy God. Can I get a witness to that? Amen. Amen. It's what we need. We need a holy God. We need a holy God who has eyes like a flame of fire. This is comforting, but it is terrifying because Jesus' eyes are so pure and holy and penetrating. They're like a searchlight and they expose everything that, is, that we try to keep hidden or secret in our closet. And, and, and Jesus sees those things as they are. All of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, this is who God is. And if you want to scare the daylights out of some kids in kids' ministry to say, God sees everything that you do. <laughs> Did your parents or your Sunday school teachers ever scare you with that? Amen. We need more of that. We need to scare each other like that. Because God does see everything. My mom used to say, Ellen, be sure your sins will find you out. Hated that. But it's true. I could read a passage for you in, 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 in Luke where Jesus said to his disciples, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Nothing. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Whew. All right. And I'm as guilty as anyone. But it's comforting because he searches our hearts in order to, to clean what's in there and to heal our brokenness, to heal our sexual brokenness. He sees everything and he, and he does that to bring transformation to our lives. He says, I see your stuff. I see your sin. Bring it to me. Bring it to me. Repent of it. Deal with it. He's so gracious. It says that Jesus has feet like burnished bronze. This was a culture where they had a very strong bronze industry. Strong. And again, this is both comforting and terrifying because Thyatira's best bronze work pales in comparison to Jesus' feet who are strong and decisive in trampling out evil. I was reading a little bit this week in Isaiah and then later in Revelation 19 where it says that Jesus treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. His feet, under which everything is subjected to, he has all authority, will tread the fury of the winepress of God's wrath. Whew. Those are some bronze feet. My life, my actions, and my rebellion, they matter to God. They matter so much that Jesus not only treads the winepress of God Almighty's fury, but then he drank that cup. He drank the cup of the fury of God's wrath for me and for you. Amen. Jesus uses those same feet that he uses to tread that wine press to chase after us 
and he is relentless in his search for us. Finally, I love this passage, and it says it in all of them. Jesus knows. He knows. And that's why in this passage it says that he's patient. He gives us time. Scripture says that he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to what? Repentance. He knows. And he's patient. He gives us time, but his patience won't last forever. And it says he searches our minds and hearts. And this morning he's searching. He's searching my mind. He's searching my heart. And he's searching yours. I know he is. It's, who he, it's what he does. It's who he is. And so the passage ends this way to Thyatira. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. So uh, while uh, Cecily and Carson and Dan lead us in um, some more singing as we continue to worship God, we do have people um, here every Sunday morning who are waiting to pray. And it is my desire if God has been all I know he has been searching your heart. His eyes have been watching. His feet are active. If there's something you need to deal with, to repent of, do it. It's the mercy of God. You can do it in where you're sitting. Sometimes it's good. As James says, to confess your sins to one another that you might be healed that you might experience the freedom and the wholeness of Christ. Maybe you want to go to a prayer partner and just confess something and say, I'm I, I need to repent of this this morning, and they will pray for you. It's the mercy of God. Or maybe you want to take that home with you and talk to somebody else. But, but just do that. Father, and there, and there might be somebody here this morning who doesn't know this Jesus. You're terrified at the thought and yet comforted by the thought. And I promise you that he has the life that you so desperately want and are searching for. He has it. So come to him. Give your life to Jesus. Make him Lord. Put him on the throne and follow what he says. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this morning, for your word. It's an amazing, hard word, but it is so encouraging, comforting. We give you praise for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.